my last lecture, in my last lecture, I got to just about all of the big picture consequences of Columbus's discovery of the New World. But I left out perhaps the most important. Before Columbus, Europeans had all known about Asia and about Africa, that it was there, and some people had actually been there. But no one had ever dreamed of the Americas. And now they realized that their own time was not just a time of recovering uh, knowledge, ancient knowledge, but was a time of learning something that was actually new. And that meant new things actually existed to be learned. And from now on, Europeans actually expected knowledge to increase. We take that for granted, uh, but this is really something that they had never done before. Now, I can't emphasize how lucky the Spanish were to find a new world, a world stocked with high civilizations, which had developed valuable crops, which had already amassed piles of precious metals. What if they had found the Asia that they were looking for? Only the New World was defenseless against Old World microbes. It was the microbes that were the true conquistadors. Asia was part of the Old World, and so it had been exposed to the same diseases as the Spanish. So they Asians, when uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese actually got there, they didn't just conveniently sicken and die on contact. Spain's very brief footholds in Japan, in China, and Cambodia, the very precarious nature of its rule in the Philippines, indeed the limited, very limited influence of the Spanish in Asia in general, I think gives you an idea of how very limited European impact on the Americas might have been had there been no demographic collapse through disease. Now, we can take 1492 as a kind of symbolic bookend uh, of two processes which are going to end in 1945, another bookend, although bookends are never, as, never in history as clear as the bookends on your shelf. 1492, first of all, makes a be convenient beginning date for the period in which the state in Europe, or let's say the states, begin to gain full sovereignty over their own affairs. And Isabella and Ferdinand, and particularly Isabella, Castile went much farther along this path uh, than uh, Aragon did. The state begins to get control of its own affairs. And uh, the Italians and the Spanish weren't the only ones. The French and the British and the Portuguese soon followed. This is a long, uneven process, but it's really beginning in the Renaissance. And secondly, it marks the beginning, the very slender beginning, of Europe's eventual hegemony over world affairs. And this is a hegemony that will peak in the decades after World War I, when Europe itself is a true mess. And then 1945, the bookend, sees the beginning of the end of both of these processes. Rapid decolonization abroad, that's what we, of course, always think of but also loss of sovereignty at home 
at least uh, in, in an important sense, uh, involuntarily, of course, to those Eastern European states that come under the control of the Soviet Union, and we rightly uh, call them satellites. But even in the West, the United States had tremendous power over major decisions in Western Europe. But gradually, this involuntary loss of sovereignty becomes a kind of voluntary giving up of sovereignty to supranational, suprastate institutions. We see that in the West with NATO. Uh, Western European states join a suprastate organization that takes over the military function. That is one of the two uh, poles of the monopoly of legitimate violence. Uh, and what it doesn't take over, they basically outsource to the United States. And secondly, through the EU, which takes over the control of many of the most important domestic functions of the state, uh, its currency, the symbol of sovereignty, and its control of the borders, who can come in, who can come out. Any citizen of any EU state can work anywhere else in the EU. Uh, they don't need any special uh, treatment. Now, how far these two processes will go in devolving police functions uh, to uh, supranational organizations or in reversing Europe's hegemony is really anyone's guess. Uh, in the Sunday New York Times, uh, we had an, saw an article, some of us, that predicted the end of US, the U.S. as a global superpower and its supersession by China and Europe. So big prediction. Political scientists make those kinds of things. We historians are a little more cautious uh, about it. Now, let's look at the common culture. Though Spain was the country that walked off with the great prize, it would be wrong for us to miss what was uh, perhaps one of the most interesting feature of all of these voyages of discovery. And that is that discovery becomes a truly European enterprise. Just about every European country with an outlet on the Atlantic uh, takes part in one way or another. Now, you already know how Columbus was preceded by several decades by the Danes who went to Labrador and by a few years by the Portuguese who went around Africa. And other intrepid Portuguese went even further. But shortly thereafter, shortly after Columbus, uh, the English hired John Cabot of Genoa and then later his son, Sebastian, uh, and used Italians like these to, until they could produce their own navigators and mariners to do the exploring for them. And the French had Jacques Cartier, who mapped the St. Lawrence. Let's see, is this, this is Jacques Cartier, who mapped the St. Lawrence in Canada and Quebec down to Montreal. Uh, and sooner or later, uh, that is basically by the late 16th, 17th century, the Dutch become massively involved. And for a while, uh, Brazil is actually Dutch territory. And amazingly enough, at least for me, a third of the Dutch settlers in Brazil in this period were Portuguese and Spanish Jews who had gone to Amsterdam uh, escaping Isabella's Spain. Now, the Germans didn't command any fleets, but they did go along as missionaries, and they were very much involved from the start as map makers extraordinary. 
Now, these trips were exceedingly dangerous. Uh, the lists of explorers who died on their journeys or in confronting new climates is really very long and equally dangerous with the lives of just plain old passengers. Of the 376 Jesuits who sailed to China as missionaries between 1581 and 1712, a third of them never even got there. They died in transit. Employees of the Dutch East India Company also had tremendous mortality rates. Uh, the Dutch sent about a million men in company ships in its 200-year history from 1602 to roughly 1795. These are poor guys seeking a livelihood, and no more than a third of them ever got back to the Netherlands. A few of them settled on the Cape uh, or in Java, but most of them simply died en route. Now, the very ubiquity of the explorations of the West, and this is a sort of a map of all of them put together, is, I think, pretty strong evidence for something we take nowadays for granted. And that is, for all of the diversity of these peoples and languages and societies, there are really very strong bonds connecting them to each other, deep commonalities. And I think we can say there really is now something we can call Europe. Now, if we look around during this Renaissance period, roughly the 15th and 16th and early 17th century, we see none of the signs of progress, of new developments, uh, remaining in the hands of a single country. They spread back and forth. And I'm going to take the next few minutes to mention just three of the ones that we particularly associate with the Renaissance. And I could have picked probably three others, but these all begin with P, makes it easy for you to remember, uh, printing, perspective, and portraiture. Uh, and perhaps we can add them up, draw a line under them, and say progress. Um, okay, printing. Now, you all probably know the Chinese and the Koreans had already invented movable type a lot earlier. But outside of these regions, the process wasn't really known. And it certainly wasn't known in the West. In the West, that invention is owed to a German, Johann Gutenberg, who was a goldsmith, a gem polisher, and a mirror maker. That means he was multi-talented as an artisan. He came, in fact, from a patrician family in Mainz, in Germany. And he combined a high degree of technical artisanal skill with great entrepreneurial aspirations. Unfortunately, he proved much better as an inventive inventor than as a businessman. Uh, he ended up having basically uh, to sell most of his interest in his business to a partner. But that's his private life. Uh, we won't go there. Gutenberg had printed a few things before his Bible, but it was his Bible that really made, this is, uh, by the way, supposed to be a picture of an early printing press. Uh, one of the guys is inking the, um, the metal type, and the other is fastening on a sheet of paper that he's going to press, put under the press, and have it smashed together to print a page. Okay, here is the Gutenberg Bible. <clears throat> Each sheet of this Bible came out separately, was printed separately, and Gutenberg didn't bind them together. You bought all the sheets, and you'd have to figure out the binding for yourself. Uh, the major capital letters were still hand-painted. 
In fact, you can see that going on in the very background here are a bunch of artists putting on uh, the finishing uh, touches. This technique spread like wildfire, first to the German towns that dotted the Rhine and the Main River, and then beyond. A European who was born in 1453 and lived a normal lifespan would have lived to see a million books, or eight million actually, printed. Now, I say live to see. I don't mean he actually saw them with his own eyes. We'll use them in the way presidential candidates use the word see, if you've been following the news. He lived in a world in which that happened. Eight million books. That's more books than in the entire history of Europe from the founding of Constantinople until its fall, more than a 1,000 years. Now, print was so much cheaper than manuscript, by a factor of at least 10, uh, that people just glommed on to this process. It took a year for a copyist to make one single Bible. Now they were really rolling off the presses. In 1424, the University of Cambridge's library had only 122 books in its collection, and each book cost about what a small farm uh, would cost. Now there is simply an explosion of communication. No wonder, I think, that the news of Spain's discoveries and Portuguese, Portuguese discoveries just went from country to country to country. No wonder that Luther's rebellion against the church in Rome uh, also jumped linguistic and national borders. I think without printing, and we'll see more about this next Tuesday, the Reformation really would have been unimaginable. Well, on to the next P, which is perspective. And that is the invention that most people associate with the Italian Renaissance. Now, until the Renaissance, most painting was done on the walls or ceilings of churches or on altar pieces. And artists didn't even try to disguise the fact that what you were seeing were only symbols of reality on something flat. And here are a couple of examples. This is a Byzantine mosaic, Christos Pantocrator from the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. It's a mosaic. You see here no attempt at depth whatsoever. And here is a ladder to heaven, devils catching people who are not looking out on the way up. This is as flat, really, as a comic strip. This is from the Sinai Desert, uh, St. Catherine's, uh, a really lovely piece, but no perspective. And here is a medieval altarpiece by Simone Martini from 132. Here you see a little bit of modeling in the face, a little bit of curvature of the hands and the folds of the garment. But still, this is a painter who is accepting the flatness of the surface. Your vision comes right up to the wall and then just stops. But now, look at this piece by, whoops, can't seem to go, whoop, back. How am I going to get there? I'm there? No. Oh, I'm there. Good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> okay, this is a, a Giovanni Bellini from about 100 years later. I saw this myself in Italy, and I thought I was looking at a statue of a Madonna and child and two other statues in niches in the wall. But when I got up close, I saw the whole thing was an optical illusion. 
There's no niche there. It's all painted on a flat wall, just a regular old painting. Now, this is a simple example of what had become a revolution in painting over the course of the 15th century. The introduction of three dimensions into painting, the discovery of perspective. Now, as the first theorist of Western art, Leon Battista Alberti wrote, <clears throat> and I quote, painting is nothing other than the representation on a flat surface by means of lines and colors of a cross section of a visual pyramid. Notice the pyramidal form here, see, pyramid. Seen from a single distance, a single vantage point, and a single source of light. And we call this perspective. Now, uh, this is a famous example here. Uh, this is by Giorgio Martini, who was one of Italy's most famous military architects. Uh, he engineered almost 70 fortifications for the infamous Duke of Urbino. But this is his lesson in perspective this ideal cityscape or idealized cityscape from about 1495. And I wonder, notice what's chugging into port here? Is it an example, that, is it an, uh, an accident that in 1495 this ideal landscape has a, a ship coming into port? Now notice the pyramidal form here, the lines that in reality are running parallel to each other. If you were standing on that sidewalk there, these would be parallel lines. But from the viewer of the, of the uh, painting, they converge in the distance. Uh, and where they meet has become known among art uh, historians as the vanishing point. And here's the vanishing point really about there. OK, this new conception of painting turns the painting from a wall into a window. And the easel painting, which begins in this period, takes a flat surface, the cam canvas, something completely opaque, and then opens it up and turns it into a window. And here's an actual example of precisely uh, that. Landscape painting begins in this period, both as backgrounds to religious paintings, but also as subjects in their own right. And there's also develops a huge market, not just for landscapes, but for cityscapes. Painters would paint them, and then engravers would come and copy those paintings, and then printers would then publish them for a world hungry to see how other people lived. And this was particularly uh, popular to see Italian cityscapes, because the Italian cities were so famous and so rich. And Canaletto, in the 18th century, made his living painting basically large postcards of his native city of Venice. Now, here's a perfect illustration of an easel painting turned into a window, but he did uh, lots of others. This is the Campo di Rialto, also in Venice. Notice the parallel lines going off into the vanishing point. Now, the discovery of perspective and how to represent three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface was not confined to Italy. It immediately spread. Uh, once artists had figured out how to do it, you could teach it to almost anybody. And it became both a calling card of the professional painter, I can do perspective, uh, I can do windows, uh, to something that enabled a whole lot of other people to get into the act. 
And like all the other innovations in our period, it spread immediately across the Alps into Germany and then up the Rhine into the Netherlands, where it was developed even further, where artists used light as well as lines to convey depth. And here is Vermeer's, I'm sorry, the, the colors of these paintings turn out pretty awful on screen, but if you go into B space, you'll get a better sense of what the colors look like. This is Vermeer's view of Delft in the 17th century. It's almost photographic in what we call its realism. Here's today's Delft. You can see what it looks like. Now, you could, as Bellini had shown, take these same tricks of line and light and move them into interior spaces. This is awful. This I, doesn't seem to me last time the pictures came out so bad. What, am I wrong? Have they always been so ugly? <laughs> <laughs> this is really a fantastically beautiful painting. OK, so here we are. Here is the Madonna in a church. And you can see how he's using the columns as parallel lines. Van Eyck, my favorite painter. And uh, there's the vanishing point, basically the nose of the Virgin Mary. Um, OK. So the discovery of perspective begins a history of painting a as a struggle against the flatness of the surface. And this struggle doesn't end until the late 19th century when Impressionists start a new revolution that accepts the flatness of the canvas surface and then goes on under abstract expressionists to simply celebrate the flatness of the surface. And what we call, you can see the comparison there between Martini and Van Eyck, flat and depth. What we, what we call modern art is a rejection of the notion of painting as a window. And when Jackson Pollock takes the canvas off the eagle, easel, puts it on the floor, and drips things on it, uh, Time Magazine called him Jack the Dipper, He's self-consciously breaking with this Renaissance tradition. This painting, by the way, sold two years ago as the most valuable painting in the world uh, for $54.7 million. Actually, I think this one's a little better, but um, anyway. So let's move on to our third P. Do you remember what the third P is? Portraiture. Okay. Now, amazingly, we have no portraits in the West, as far as anyone has found, from roughly the 3rd century AD to the 5th century. Here's a wonderful painting of a Hellenized Egyptian uh, painted on the top, the surface of a mummy. Uh, you can see he's a real person. It's wonderfully modeled. It's really great. And then these kinds of things disappear. We have no idea what Charlemagne looked like, no idea what Aquinas looked like, the thousands of portraits of the Madonna and child that we have are only conveying an idea of Mary and Jesus. They're not making any attempt to do a particular person. Yes? To basically the 15th century. You know, these dates are fuzzy, um, but you know, someone is going to find something in the 14th century that may fuzz it up a little more, but basically this is it. Okay. Then, after, let us say, you know, 1,400, uh, 1,100 years of no portraits, suddenly they appear again. And moreover, artists are trying to make their representations not pictures of the ideal, at least not when they're dealing with human beings instead of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
they are trying to make their pictures really look like the people they're doing. Now, unfortunately, this isn't coming out very well either. Uh, they did this partly to show off, to show that they could do it. But they also did it because, amazingly enough, this is what the customer wanted. Uh, we saw this when we looked at the painting of Federigo da Montefeltre, the Duke of Urbino, last week. He is not a pretty sight, but he didn't want people to touch him up. Uh, the double chin is there. Uh, the Duke was apparently like Oliver Cromwell, England's military dictator in the 17th century, who famously said to the artist who came in to paint his portrait that he wanted it to look like him, warts and all. These mercenary soldiers and these rich merchants who could pay to have their likenesses recorded for posterity wanted to make sure that their posterity knew it was them in these pictures, no matter how far from handsome they might be. Now, here is a very famous uh, painting by Van Eyck. Unfortunately, we've just lost the color here. Do we know why? Is there any? Pardon? What's dying? The projector might be dying. Oh. Ooh, we better hurry up this lecture. Okay. Well, here is Mr. Arnolfini, and you can see he's no beauty. Uh, now, painters were eager to oblige with real likenesses as a way of showing their skill, and owners, of course, wanted to show their wealth. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who could, it's very hard to see here, but he could afford can't really see it at all. These are oranges, and they're really orange in the picture. Uh, and he could afford pets, little fuzzy dogs, and he could afford uh, fur coats for himself and ermine lining uh, for his wife. And he could afford brass candlesticks. So here we are uh, celebrating the individual who is buying the painting. But note also Jan van Eyck celebrates himself. Uh, this is Latin for... Uh, I did it, basically. This is my signature right there in the middle. And he actually paints himself in the mirror there. Too bad you can't see it. Look it up on B's face. You see him, you know, this is, this is uh, Mr. and Mrs. Arnolfini, and there's Jan van Eyck, and somebody else is back there. I don't know, Mrs. van Eyck. This is something painters love to do. Uh, here is, a, again, the artist is reflected in the curved surface of this silver wine jug. Okay, now I want to switch gears, move away from the new and back to the old, to the very foundations of Europe's common culture, and I want to go to the most basic building blocks of any society, its most private relationships, its family, its reproductive unit, and the relations between the sexes. Now, unlike painting and printing, which were initially uh, luxuries of the elite, the family is something that everybody shares. It touches everyone. And this story of the family is, in fact, rather surprising because we find that the Western European pattern then looks remarkably like the families and relations that we see in the West today. Now, ordinary people rarely leave any records telling us what they thought or felt about things or even what their lives were like. There were no places to blog in those days, even if they had been uh, literate enough to do it. Uh, 
most of the people when our story begins are quite illiterate. And even if they weren't, uh, they certainly uh, weren't any more likely to keep a diary than most people are today. So until very recently, his, historians have had to not just guess, but infer. That is, take what we do know and make a jump into what we don't know. And we have relied on pictures, like the Arnolfini wedding that I just showed you, on folklore, on poems, on plays, etc. And then about 30 or 40 years ago, historians began to realize they had one great source for ordinary life. And this is a source that goes back very, very far. And this is the church's baptismal registers. Every Christian baby before the Reformation gets baptized at birth or as soon after birth as his parents dare take him out of the house. And this cer ceremony makes her or him a member of the church. And then the parish priest writes it down in a register, writing down the names of the parents, sometimes their ages, sometimes their residence, their own parents, and sometimes their occupation. Now, this isn't a lot to go on. But then if the historian looks up the baptismal records of the parents' parents and finds out who they were, and then the parents' parents' parents, little by little, the history of the whole family can be reconstituted. It's like connecting the dots, and it's been especially fruitful in places like southern England, which is densely covered with little churches uh, barely a mile apart from each other. And the result of these family reconstitution studies, as, been, as they've been called, has been to overturn much of what historians believed about the average person's reproductive behavior. Historians believe that in all pre-industrial societies in Europe, just like in the rest of the world today, uh, the, pretty much the same reproductive patterns can be found. And this reproductive pattern, they thought, consisted of two axioms. First of all, uh, girls get married as soon as they reach puberty. Why do historians think that? Well, there's what we call literary evidence. Everybody knows Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, written in Renaissance England, set in Verona, Italy. Juliet was only 14 when her family began to talk about marrying her off, and her mother said, after all, Juliet, I was even younger than you. So historians believed this literary evidence of very, very early female marriages because it was supported by the fact of very young marriages, especially for women, throughout the non-industrialized world today. The second axiom and the logical corollary of the first early marriage was that in pre-industrial societies, people have as many children as is biologically possible. That is, from the onset of menses until menopause. Uh, and that explains the population explosion that some people are still complaining about in the non-industrialized parts of the world today. Seems reasonable, right? Biology is a constant. Sexual desire is presumably a given. It's independent of culture. There's no technological means of birth control. Ergo, large families are inevitable. Well, turns out, at least for the West, west of this Latin Cyrillic divide and uh, perhaps north of Sicily and Andalusia, these axioms and their corollary is simply wrong. In fact, Europe, especially Northern Europe, 
had a unique family pattern based upon four features. One, Western women did not marry upon reaching puberty. Typically, they waited about 10 years, an incredible time in a short lifespan, during which time they left their parents' home and went out to work as domestic servants. The average age at marriage seems to have been about 24 for women and about 28 for men. And this points to a second finding. Husbands and wives were roughly the same age. And 25% of the women were actually older than their husbands. This is a huge difference from many parts of the world today, where the husband can be 20, 30 years older than his wife. Now, of course, there are always exceptions. There are individual exceptions. There are regional customs that are different. We're talking about averages here. A third distinctive feature of the Western family pattern, as we call it, brides were usually not incorporated into their husband's households. Couples didn't marry until they were able to establish a separate household for themselves. And if they couldn't put together enough resources to set up a separate household, well, they didn't get married at all. The extended family as a household unit is, for pre-industrial Western Europe, a myth. Now, why did couples in the West wait so long to get married? It's closely tied up with their economic and social expectations. They were expected to support themselves, expected to be independent. The household was conceived as a miniature firm. And people don't set up new firms until they have some capital. Uh, it can be a small plot of land, or it can be uh, looking around, they see a vacant slot among the artisans. They know how to make shoes, and they see that the local cobbler has just died or maybe gone out of business. And this brings me to the fourth and perhaps most surprising characteristic. Some people never got married at all. In late 17th century England, almost 23% of the population by the age of 44 had never married. This is probably the high point of Europe's low fertility until the last 10 or 15 years. So this is the Western European family pattern. It is radically different from most other pre-industrial societies. And as late as 1910, it didn't exist in Eastern Europe. Uh, there were Serbian villages, for example, where women married very, very young, 13 and 14. Virtually 100% of all women and men married. Jewish families employed matchmakers to make sure that, as the old saying goes, uh, there's a lid for every pot. Now, when this distinctive matrimonial pattern began to emerge in the West, no one knows. But it begins very early, as far back as people have been able to find records. The small, two-generational parent-child nuclear family that we associate with the modern world existed in the West as the dominant pattern as far back as we can find. Now, these are enormous differences from the rest of the world even today, although certainly this pattern, family pattern has spread into other industrialized societies worldwide. Now, think for a minute what are the implications of this kind of system. Guy. Good. 
population is kept below the biological minimum at all times. Very interesting. Yes. Oh, I've, to our radio audience, uh, he says that uh, Guy said it takes a long time for the population to grow. Yes, you. Well, that is an interesting possibility. Less infant mortality, they're not as afraid of infants dying. Uh, that may be the case. Once again, these are implications. There are no wrong answers to this question because we don't really know. Yes? Perhaps there, there was a considerable economic um, growth in, 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 in that time period because there were enough providers to maintain the equivalent. You would think so. You would think so. But in fact, we found, and we'll come to this later on this semester, population really begins to grow when economic opportunity that you're describing begins to grow. These people are deliberately not growing their population, which suggests to some um, that there aren't really a lot of opportunities. Um, it's very, very, demographers are really uh, hard to deal with. Um, and I, as I say, I think anybody's guess is probably as good as anyone else's. Any other thoughts back here? Somebody not in the front row. Yes? You could, and they probably do later on when there is education. Jan de Vries in our own department has talked about the Industrious Revolution, where uh, people can invest in their children. I think, though, this is happening too early for that to be a possibility. Uh, because nobody knows how to read and write anyway, except for very few. Way back there. Do men and women marry for economic reasons or out of love? Well, this is a very interesting question, and I would say they certainly marry for economic reasons. But the women are older, and marriage for both of them is a choice. So they're choosing which economic person they want to settle with. Now, of course, the more money and land the family has and the higher up the social stratum they go, the less choice they have. That's why we have so many 19th century novels about, oh, I want to marry him, but my pa parents won't let me. Uh, this is only the case among wealthy families and middle-class families. It is never the case among poor people because your family doesn't have anything much to give you anyway or very little. So the poorer you are, the more your choice is your choice. It might be for love. It might be uh, for profit. Um, but there it is. And it's individuals, again, down the bottom of the social scale, not families so much, who are making these choices, although the families can certainly influence you along the way. Now, the big question is, is this causing Western individualism? And say what you like, uh, the West is certainly much more individualistic in a very hard-hearted way, you could say, than the rest of the world. Or is individualism in the family itself a consequence of other attitudes? Some people say this predisposed the West towards capitalism, that is, basing economic decisions on the calculations of individuals. Uh, some people think this. Certainly, extended kin connections are clearly less important in the West 
than elsewhere. Uh, a widowed parent might indeed move in with her children or his children, but it was by no means always the case. To a remarkable extent, old parents lived and died alone. And since Western women, uh, even then, tended to live longer than men, the existence of all of these old women living by themselves probably had something to do with Europe's witchcraft hysteria, something else unique to Europe and particularly in the West that we'll talk about later this semester. The question of romantic love comes up. Uh, certainly there is a better chance for companionate marriage and greater equality between the sexes. Certainly the bride brings more power into a marriage when her age is closer to that of her husband's, when she has some experience, uh, when she's maybe got a, a chest full of sheets and towels, that's some capital that she's bringing. And certainly, because she's been out of the parental home, true, in service, but she's seen a little something of the world. So this pattern produced a kind of everyday freedom in the relations between the sexes that would have been unknown in much of the rest of the world, and certainly in the Islamic world, where the ideal for women was to be secluded from everybody but their immediate family and their husbands. Uh, now, this was an ideal that spread to Spain and continued there for a long time. But the Western pa pattern produced images that we take for granted, uh, but would have been impossible in the Islamic world of that day. Heterosexual dancing. In Eastern Europe, it's all intrasexual dancing. The, the Russian men all line up together and, as you know, get down and do squat jumps and so forth. Uh, in Western Europe, they dance with each other and non-family members. And we see this, once again, these colors are horrific. Uh, but here we are, Jan Bruegel, uh, the elder, 1568. Look at this village. They are hopping around, the old and the young, uh, in the front, in the back, on the side. Uh, there's also a little hanky-panky going on here off stage. There's a mother and child, or but over here there's some kissing going on in public. You know, who knows what's going to happen next. Uh, <laughs> here we are about 80 years later, uh, or 60 years later. This is uh, Jan Bruegel, uh, sorry, Peter Bruegel, not Jan Bruegel. That's another one of the many Bruegels. Uh, this is Peter Bruegel the Younger. And here they are dancing again. Uh, and here we are, Jan Steen, maybe the Dutch are a little freer than others, they're dancing too. Uh, also, the entry of non-family members into the same domestic space that was inhabited by women is clear from these pictures. Uh, in fact, there's not much distinction between public and private going on. Here she is nursing her baby here, and here's somebody coming in to do business with them. Finally, with such late marriages, population growth in Western Europe, as Guy said to begin with, never reached the biological maximum. To give just one extremely striking example, by the 14th century, Europe's population had grown enormously since the year 1000. Remember I said in that year a squirrel in Paris could have gone all the way to Moscow just hopping from tree to tree. Uh, it was so unurbanized that they wouldn't have ever had, he wouldn't have ever had to touch ground. Well, now the West had developed thousands of cities and market towns and villages and clear fields, and the West uh, had an estimated 74 million people. So the population has shifted really from East to West. 
But in 1397, the Black Death, which, by the way, was not the bubonic plague, began going from village to village, coming out here uh, from the Black Sea, the Caspian, the Black Sea area, and then hopping around in Europe, reducing the population by a third, and in Italy, in Florence, for example, by a half, to less than 14% of the world's total by the year 1400. Now, the odd thing and counterintuitive, you would say, is that when the Black Death passed, birth rates did not go up. Studies of individual towns and villages show that in the West, people kept fertility deliberately low. In most places, families had seven children. You may think that's a lot, but it's a considerable drop from 10, which is what you would expect if they had babies at a natural, quote, unquote, rate. And in England, in the 16th century, the average number of births was only about 3.6 per family. So how'd they do it? How do they keep birth rates so low? Largely by some form of abstinence, because they didn't have mechanical birth control really until the 19th century. Certainly celibacy. This is a world with monasteries and convents. And most of all, by delayed marriage. And we can prove that it was abstinence because illegitimate births were also extremely low in this society. In England, uh, about 3.5% of all births from the mid-16th century till 1810 or so. In France, uh, just a little more than half of 1% of all births until the end of the 18th century. Illegitimacy doesn't rise until the end of the 18th century in the first half of the 19th century. So what are the causes of this Western family pattern, uh, making it so radically different from elsewhere? These patterns grow out of millions of millions of individual decisions, so we can only speculate. But three causes or combination of causes have been suggested. First of all, Germanic tribal patterns, and particularly Germanic common law. Germanic common law, tribal law, gave women greater freedom and equality seen through their property rights than many other societies, and certainly more than Roman law did, which prevailed south of the Alps. Secondly, and I think this is much clearer, Christianity was unusual among religions because it celebrated celibacy. It demanded monogamy and it insisted that marriage was indissoluble. Therefore, Christianity had the result of reducing the value of fertility, uh, marginally reducing it, but marginally turns out to be important. For example, we have no evidence in the Middle Ages and the early modern period of so-called trial marriages that we see in some societies, where the couple wait to get married to make sure the woman is fertile. Moreover, though there were several reasons why a church, the church might annul a marriage, including uh, if the husband couldn't consummate it, a marriage could not be dissolved simply because of infertility, of the bride being infertile. Now you can say, well, what about those kings who can finagle dispensations from the church in order to get a male heir? Uh, well, uh, that only says what we already know, the powerful then, like the powerful now, are able to get around the rules that bind the rest of society. 
But even for kings, this kind of annulment was never a sure thing, as we'll find out next week. A main precipitating cause of the Protestant Reformation in England was that the Pope refused to give Henry VIII an annulment to his marriage of Catherine of Aragon because she hadn't produced a male heir. So what we see are special attitudes of Christianity towards sex, towards marriage. This must have played a role. But a third element, one being emphasized more and more recently, uh, seems to have come into play, and that is a kind of economic reasoning, whether conscious or unconscious. Now, this is a very delicate and complicated matter. We don't want to imply the rest of the world are irrational in their economic re reasoning when they don't limit their birth. Uh, what is reasonable and rational uh, uh, choice in one society will be economic suicide in another, as some of these questions here and suggestions have pointed out. But one reason we have for thinking that some kind of rational calculation relating sexual behavior to available resources may have come into play is the fact that the birth rate went up when economic opportunity went up. And this is true for births out of wedlock, which follow the same curve, although lower down on the graph, as births in wedlock. So to summarize, here is the Western European family pattern for ordinary people. Marriages, late. Marriages between equals or near equals in age, with women sometimes even the older party. And that also shows a lower value for fertility. Three, some people never marry at all. Four, one couple per household. Five, no marriage without a household. Six, no babies or almost no babies outside marriage. In fact, this pattern sounds pretty familiar. Now, too, Europeans are limiting their families to unprecedented levels, unprecedented in all human history. It's gone so far that in some European countries, Eastern as well as West, we have negative birth rates. The Italians, the Danes, and the Russians are not producing, reproducing their populations. And this habit is spreading. And demographers are now predicting a demographic implosion in your lifetime. Now, the decision to limit the size of families is probably not irrational for individuals. More pay, more vacations are very important. But it looks very irrational for European society as a whole. Where is the younger generation going to come from to do the work to pay the taxes on which European societies have highly developed infrastructures of social service on which these societies depend. The one possibility to sustain Europe's prosperity, it now seems, will be to allow unprecedented levels of immigration, uh, unprecedented in European history, and it's already happening. Now, ironically, ironically, if you think of how our course begins, much of this immigration is coming from Muslim countries. And some scholars are predicting, for example, that Germany is going to have a Muslim majority by the end of this century. Uh, but that's getting ahead of our story. Back to the Renaissance. Now, this Western family pattern, which seems so modern, uh, might tempt us to think these people are a lot like ourselves. We must resist that temptation. 
Next week, we're going to be talking about the mentality of these medieval and early modern Europeans, and you'll see it's very different from ours. But for now, it's enough to remember that a pattern is really only an outline. What is filling the blanks of this outline? Daily life as it was lived by ordinary people. And this was very different from life in modern industrial societies. This is a world of hierarchy. Only in the 16th and 17th centuries are the legal compulsions requiring you to dress according to your rank and not try to dress like the people ahead of you, are they beginning to be not enforced and pass away. This is a world of unquestioning subordination. Some men, no matter how modest their circumstances are in the great scheme of things, are going to be commanding and other men are going to be obeying. And even peasant households, which are themselves employing servants, typically send their own children out into service. And these young kids, really, have to live in someone else's family as an absolute menial, eating at their table down at the far end, sleeping in a corner of their homes, or perhaps even in the barn. They had absolutely no privacy. So we see that the vows that monks and nuns take, poverty, chastity, and obedience, uh, we rightly associate this with living in a monastery. These are only somewhat more form, formal, more permanent uh, versions of what is a fact of life for most people, at least until their mid-20s. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. Also, for others who never managed to save enough money or enough goods or to find an opening to establish an independent household, it's their life for their whole life. And this was a world in which the overwhelming majority of people live close to the bone, on the edge of subsistence. However much you might have gnashed your teeth living in someone else's house, always being under their eyes, at their beck and call, it beat the alternative. And don't let these paintings, of Bruegel's paintings of people eating themselves into a stupor, uh, fool you. When you see a peasant wearing a fur coat, as this one is. Uh, when you see uh, that they're asleep, you should be suspicious. When you see eggs, this little egg here, uh, walking up to the peasant just asking to be eaten, and the head of a grown chicken inside has already conveniently been removed. Or when you see a wild boar strolling around with a knife right next to him, uh, taped actually to his hide for convenient slicing, and here you see a pheasant uh, putting its head, if it has a head, right down on that plate, just asking to be eaten, you know you've left the world of reality. And sure enough, this painting is called The Land of Cochine, the traditional word in Western Europe for never-never land. Even more realistic pictures, like this by Bruegel's son, The Wedding Feast, depicts a special occasion, and in any case, the Netherlands was an unusually prosperous society. Most ordinary people in Europe were not that fat. Now, outside these millions of little households, what we see are what were called masterless men, literally homeless. Beggars are everywhere in this period, at your door, in the marketplace, squatting outside of churches, wandering up and down the roads, very threatening 
sight to most people. Um, now, there are laws against them. And one of the earliest attempts at census that we have in 1688 in England estimated that more than half the entire population of England were vagrants. That means beggars, gypsies, and thieves. Of course, thieves, because if they can't get what they want by begging, they're going to get into your cabbage patch. And even among those who had a home, poverty was a way of life that lasted a very, very long time in Europe, in Russia, right up to the turn of the century. Here is a photograph. OK. Well, we know now how ordinary people reproduce themselves, and I think you have a sense of how they lived. What's going on in their minds? We can't know about individuals very well unless they are the intellectuals who leave records, but we can get a sense of their mental furniture. That is, the kinds of things that is there in everybody's mind, regardless of who they are, and we call this culture. Okay. The culture of Europe was based on two pillars. First was classical civilization, uh, Greco-Roman civilization. Uh, for a long time, people in the West thought of themselves, believe it or not, as Romans. Uh, and you have plenty of examples of this harking back to Greek and Roman times in your readings this week, uh, Sepulveda, Las Casas, but also Cortes, for example. When he demanded that his men sink their ships after he landed at Veracruz in Mexico, to impress upon them that there was no turning back, he appealed to their pride by comparing this bold deed to those of the great Romans. And his companions countered by referring to the Greeks, saying Alexander the Great had never attempted anything so foolhardy as trying to take Mexico with 400 men. Uh, actually, Cortes had 600. Now, I mention this only to illustrate how enthralled even these cutthroats were to the worship of classical civilization, uh, its examples and its knowledge. In fact, probably Cortez's real model may have been Tariq ibn Said, El Moro, the Moor, who landed at Gibraltar in 711 with only 7,000 Moroccans and promptly burnt his fleet, gave a rousing speech telling them they had nowhere to go but forward, and uh, he eventually got 5,000 reinforcements, and he actually routed the Visigoth army. So uh, maybe this was also uh, a model for Cortes. But I digress. The Germans, in fact, called their emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, they called him the Roman Emperor. Latin is still the language used in the church, in science, in scholarship, and in written communication in general. Students spoke Latin which enabled them to be migratory animals going from university to university. And Europe had a lot, a uh, 100 universities by the year 1500. This map, hard to see, but the basic point is all of those italicized cities had a university at one time or another during this period. Now, this traveling around from universities was no problem because all the, all the lectures were given in Latin. And the Hungarian parliament actually conducted its business in Latin until the year 1848. Now, the second pillar of Western culture was the Bible, that is, Jewish and Christian scriptures. Now, of course, most of the population couldn't read, but they learned the Bible and the church's interpretation of it through preaching monks, friars who traveled from town to town, but also through carvings on the doors of churches 
and the walls, pictures on the walls of the churches, and street plays uh, that depicted the miracles in the Bible. And this is the famous baptistry in Florence. And here we have uh, the story of Adam and Eve. there is uh, eating the fruit, and here Adam, Eve is being drawn out of Adam's rib. Here is uh, Isaac uh, blessing, accidentally, uh, Jacob instead of Esau over here. In any case, there they are. Also, classical civilization had been absorbed into the church. So you might often see in a church Greek mythological heroes like Hercules carved on the very same door as the Apostle Paul. Now, this sense of historical perspective that tells people this is an anachronism was a contribution of humanist scholarship beginning in the 15th century in the Renaissance, but it took a long time to seep into popular consciousness. Even the educated were still inclined to to treat pagan classical uh, civilization and the Christian world as if in some sense they're a continuum. And you may have noticed when you read the Italian humanist Pico della Mirandola this week that he cites as authority for his ideas uh, Moses and Timaeus in the same breath. Moses from the Bible, Timaeus from Plato. In Italy, particularly, uh, Greek and especially Roman ruins are just everywhere you go in the city and the countryside, but not only in Italy, As far north as Trier in Germany, you have uh, Roman ruins. And what's this? This is Vilnius, Lithuania, a Greek temple. Well, actually, it looks like a Greek temple, but it's a church. And this shows this kind of melding of the two civilizations. Now, we shouldn't exaggerate the degree to which the 15th and 16th century, with its rise of towns and its new wealth and its new knowledge, fostered a secular, non-religious view of life. Secularism and piety intertwined with one another. Let's go back to that Italian businessman, uh, Jacopo, whoops, how are we going to get there? Arnolfini. Can't seem to do it. Well, do what we can. Here he is. Remember him and his bride, painted by Jan van Eyck. Now, you might think that the loving attention uh, to his material surroundings, his brass candelabra, his velvet draperies, his fur coat, his little pet, his mirror, would illustrate the new secularism, the new worldliness. But that's only half of the story. Remember I said I would return to the mirror, a symbol of worldliness. Well, what do we see here? We see not just a reflection of the happy couple, not just the ego-tripping artist back there. We see the life of Christ. Let's get it closer. Closer still. Each of these little medallions is a scene of the life of Christ. Here's the crucifixion. Here's the deposition from the cross (laughs) down here. Um... This is preaching. I suppose here is preaching. I have seen this in London, and you're welcome to see it too. These medallions are so tiny that the pictures inside are almost invisible to the naked eye. And they're meant to be. God alone can see them. And you remember that uh, double portrait of the ambassadors by Heinz? 
Hans Holbein the Younger. Well, what do we see here? We see self-satisfied humanist representations of their art and their music and their science and their travel. Furthermore, they are standing in the center of the universe. Look at the floor. The pattern on the floor is a microcosm taken from uh, England's uh, Westminster Abbey, the National Cathedral of England, in fact. Now, this microcosm is a common Renaissance theme. Here's the floor of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. We see the same thing. Sistine named after Pope Sixtus. So can we say that this is a painting of the new secularism? Well, let's look back at the floor of the ambassadors. You see what you see? See a skull. And these are my manipulations. Uh, but on the web, somebody much more technologically gifted than I has actually got it there uh, for you. So what do we have? The skull is a memento mori, the remember death. This is a constant theme in the Renaissance. Uh, here is a, a similar one. This is part of a very large frieze. Somebody interpret this picture for me. Yes, over there. Anyone want to try? Well, who is this guy? What's he doing? No, he's got a little uh, telescope of some sort. He's got a little scientific instrument. Uh, he's dressed like a humanist. This guy's dressed like a scientist. And the message we should take home here is what? Death gets everyone and knowledge is basically what? Worthless. You're going to die, you know. And here's a picture of a beautiful young woman who is being seduced or so forth and so on. Picture of lovers. What is this telling us? Sex, love, it's a trap. Uh, <laughs> death is inevitable. It is always there. Let's go back to the ambassadors because I want to note another connection in the symbolism with the Sistine Chapel. In Jewish tradition, the canopy stands for the sky, separating the wor this world from the next. In Renaissance art, the curtain is a way of saying there's another world, an invisible world, right behind you, ever-present, closely connected to the vis visible tactile world, yet hidden from your sight but awake, awaiting you. Here is Raphael's Sistine Madonna, and uh, the Virgin Mary is standing here in front of a green curtain, just like in the ambassadors. She's illustrating Mary and Christ's role as intermediaries between this world and the next as gateways, really, to the next world. Now, everything in the Renaissance world, as you see from your reading of Pico, was connected in a single fabric of meaning. Women were mirrors of men. Old Testament precedes the new, but also prophesies it, prefigures it. It's full of typologies, uh, theology in those days. So Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac prefigures God the Father's willingness to sacrifice his son, Jesus. And if we look at the bottom of this picture, what is this here? Somebody over here? Yes? That is it. It's the papal tiara. Right. So what does this say to you looking at it over here? 
you could say, well, the Pope is pretty marginal, right? I mean, these are the guys that we put on our little uh, Valentine's cards. But here, the church, he's representing the visible church who is connecting this world here to the world beyond the curtain. And this, of course, brings me to the institutional embodiment of this belief system, the church, the church, the single most important institution in European history, the connecting link between the ancient and the modern world. Greek philosophy becomes theology. Roman law becomes canon law. And these two cultural pillars of the West, let's call it Athens and Jerusalem, are symbolized in the city of Rome itself. This city, as I said, was literally littered with ruins of the Roman Empire and the even more ancient Greek ruins. But Rome was also filled with the relics of the earliest days of Christianity, the chains that bound St. Paul, strands of the Virgin Mary's hair, not to mention splinters of the true cross. So Rome was a visible connection with the ancient past. It was also the center of the church in the West. The Christian church in Rome was founded by the disciple Peter, who, according to tradition, was the first bishop of Rome, and he was martyred there. Now, the name Peter means rock, and in the Bible, Christ literally renames his disciple. Up until then, the guy was called Simon, but Christ says to him in Matthew 16, verse 18, 19, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be considered loosed in heaven. Now, on these lines, Matthew 16 was constructed the doctrine of what was called Petrine supremacy. Petrine, the word Petrus, meaning rock. The belief that the bishop of Rome became known as the pope was the chief among all the Christian bishops and therefore head of the church. Now, Eastern Orthodox Christianity initially accepted only a very limited version of Petrine supremacy, and this acceptance gradually disappeared over the years. In the West, however, the Pope was seen as more than simply the head of the church. As the Roman Empire in the West dwindled and faded, the Pope had become the natural successor, not just to the Apostle Peter, but to the Roman emperors as well. Since there's no emperor in Rome anymore, the bishop of Rome began to take over public affairs in the city and necessarily involved himself in politics. Thus, when we look at Latin Christendom more closely, we see another crucial difference from the Byzantine East. The ancient world, ancient Egypt, ancient Israel, had known no distinction between secular and spiritual power. And in the later Roman Empire, the emperor actually was proclaimed a god. Uh, you didn't have to believe it, but uh, that's what he was. And so when the emperor Constantine converts to Christianity circa 330 AD, he naturally assumes he's going to be the head of the church as well. And right from the start, Constantine involves himself in all aspects of the church's governance. Subsequent Byzantine emperors continued this tradition of a very close connection between church and state. Now, the Byzantine Empire, as you know, uh, continued as a single political unit right down to its final uh, fall in 1453, although it's much shrunk. 
So the emperor was very powerful and could actually assert himself as head of the church, not just head of the state. But in the Latin West, political power broke up into a multitude of states, kingdoms, duchies, counties, etc. And the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called, is really just an umbrella term for a bunch of these states. It's not itself a state. Now, all of these rulers in the West, the princes, would have loved to be, have exactly the same power as the Byzantine emperor did, including power over the church, control of its property, control of clerical appointments. And they claimed to have it whenever they could get away with it. And originally, the doctrine divine right of kings is not a claim to authority over you and me and everyone. It's a claim to religious authority equal to the pope. But these secular rulers were a disadvantage, had a disadvantage because they were many and the church was one, a single organization with a single head and therefore sometimes powerful enough to put up strong resistance. When one ruler would get too pushy and meddle too much in the church's affairs, what could the pope do? Call on another ruler. Hey, help me out of here, which would help him resist and get a little piece of the pie himself. So this, too, involves the pope in secular politics. In the high Middle Ages especially, a series of reforming popes worked hard to buttress the church's independence from secular rulers. And this is one of the reasons for the pope's renewed insistence from the 11th century on on the clergy remaining unmarried. This was not the case in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Why does he want the clergy unmarried? He doesn't want clerical offices to be hereditary, because why? There would be a whole lot of succession disputes, uh, even wars. He also found this a way to bind the clergy to each other as a kind of elite caste, like being in the army, diminishing their family ties with the rest of society, which would make it harder for them to do their job impartially. Also, it would make them, he thought, probably rightly, more independent of the favors of the secular princes and the threats. Uh, they might, for example, offer land to his sons, the clergy's sons, or booty or something. Now, throughout the Middle Ages, right on up through the 19th century, the West has seen a constant struggle between church and state, between secular powers and temporal, uh, temporal secular powers and spiritual ones. Each side seeks independence from and control over the other. But though the balance shifts back and forth, neither side wins permanently. And in fact, we now see, historians now see, that it's not the victory of one side over the other, but the struggle itself that is important for marking the West. This discord, very discord between political power and ecclesiastical power, the sacred and profane, within this relatively small geographical peninsula we call the West, stood in the way of creating an all-powerful despotism extending over the entire civilization. This discord between two authorities that share the same ideology but dispute who's got control of it creates space for social forces like towns and leagues and guilds in public life. And it's not going too far to say that here lie the origins of Europe's civil society, even its constitutionalism, although very diff distant ones. But the 
Japanese political theorist Murayama says here indeed is the origins of the West. Now the presence of Jews in what was called and called itself Christendom might seem a real anomaly. They were not treated well in times of disaster, which could be seen as a time, sign of divine wrath. Uh, they might be attacked or expelled from their homes. But European Jews were not destroyed as they were in modern times. And whatever the popular hatred, Christendom was ideologically prevented from killing them all because the Bible said Christ would come again only when all the Jews were converted. In any case, the church's claim to universality had only been an ideal. Even in the Latin West, there had always been quarrels within the church, schisms, divergent belief. The ideal of the church was precisely to encompass the whole of society, but since everyone becomes a member simply by infant baptism, few of these members could have ever passed a strict test on their theology. The traditional church was forced to make many compromises with local customs and popular preferences, much more than would happen after the uh, rise of Martin Luther and after the proponents of reform began to set up their religions on their own and make doctrinal and moral tests, not infant baptism, the price of admission. Thus, the traditional church learned to live with prostitution, sometimes only semi-legal as in Flanders, sometimes fully legal and municipally regulated as in France, where brothels had to close on Sundays and during Holy Week. Uh, but people had constant reminders that the flesh was only temporary. The traditional church also winked an eye at many folkloric customs that a later age would call pagan superstitions. Nevertheless, these features were felt to be exceptions. The belief that actual unity of Christendom, however variously felt and expressed, was a fundamental condition of all thought and activity. Whoever might be your own king or your own duke, Europeans felt themselves citizens of Respublica Christiana, the Republic of Christendom. So to summarize, by mid-15th century, Western life was characterized by three things. A distinctive family pattern, a way of life that for most people was one of insecurity, servitude, and hierarchy from the heavens above down to the children below, and three, a shared culture based on the twin pillars of Athens and Jerusalem, the Greco-Roman inheritance, and the common culture of Christianity. One of the themes to which we'll devote the next few weeks is the transformation of this Respublica Christiana from a church encompassing nearly everyone, with all the compromises this implies, to a collection of denominations, each following its own inner light, capable of setting up entrance requirements, and some insisting on withdrawing from the rest of unredeemed society altogether. So we'll see a new kind of Christianity by the end of the 16th century. This transformation changed Christianity from a culture, something encompassing all aspects of a people's world, to a religion, something that is only a part of the world. And this is a world that is now beginning its journey, though few people could foresee it, towards pluralism and secularism, though it made the trip through a century and a half 
of bloody warfare. 